Vem Magalenha Rojão, traz a lenha pro fogão, vem fazer armação. Hoje é um dia de sol, alegria de coió, é curtir o verão. You are listening to Race Capital with me, Leah Harris. And today we're starting off with the Race Capital Reframe, where I'll be joined by my co-host Naomi Isaac, and we'll dive into the headlines from this week and last week. Stay tuned on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independence Day. We are here for the Race Capital Reframe on the week of Wednesday, November 18th, 2020. And it is me, Kalia, and me, Naomi Isaac. And we're about to chop it up. We're going to jump right into the local news this week. So the Richmond Registrar's Office has a COVID outbreak that caused a delay in the state certifying election results. And due to the exposure from the outbreak at the Registrar's Office, Many candidates had to get tested for COVID-19, including LeVar Stoney, who may or may not still be in quarantine. In other news, Clea, Richmond Commonwealth's attorney Colette McEachin says that the murder of Marcus David Peters is justified. The Richmond Times-Dispatch reported that after reviewing the death of Marcus, who was a 24-year-old biology teacher, a BCU grad, and a part-time employee at the Jefferson Hotel, he was murdered by Richmond, a Richmond police officer in 2018 while experiencing a mental health crisis. Marcus was naked and unarmed killed by Richmond police on May 14th, 2018, alongside Interstate 95. It's just so incredibly disgusting for Colette to not take a stand at all, to not do her job in pursuing so-called justice for Marcus's family and his memory, especially knowing how hard they have rode for his memory trying to get that justice. And so I just think that we're going to have to keep putting the pressure on not only Colette, but all of the people who have the power to bring some semblance of justice for this murder. And it's so upsetting to think that the scope of freedom in Richmond is limited to taking down a monument. You know, when it comes to the demands in the streets have consistently been demanding and and advocating for justice for Marcus. And the fact that she decides to say that that violent, gross, as you said, murder of a man who needed help was justified. During the midst of mass uprisings in the city that are calling for her to do something, she got to go. She has to go. And the last thing I'll say about this is that the governor recently signed legislation that was passed by the General Assembly that would name a Marcus Alert bill that will allow for a mental health team to work with law enforcement when folks are are having a mental health crisis. And just the thought of this legislation around a Marcus Alert bill being, you know, that being the language, and then Colette cowardly not opening the case and actually investigating and finding fault for the death when we're obviously passing legislation because there was something wrong with what happened. And so I just don't understand. I don't understand it. 
it's a spit in the face to the people. It's a spit in the face to the family. And it's a spit on Marcus's grave. Yes. And I just hope that folks understand that, like, we will not stop demanding true justice for Marcus David Peters, which looks like defunding the police department that killed him. And that will not change. And another cowardly cop not standing up and doing the right thing will not stop us from that. In another update, on the Civilian Review Board Task Force here in Richmond, last week, City Council did not vote to approve the slate of CRB task force members that included two former members of law enforcement. Instead, they will be meeting to talk further about the applicants in the next organizational development meeting of City Council, which has all nine members and will meet on December 7th, 2020. I'm interested in seeing how the vote turns out on this because I think they like to do a lot of the things in the dark when energy's kind of died down and folks aren't paying attention. And then we see some very uh, cruel legislation being passed. So I'm really interested in seeing how folks mobilize around this. At the last city council meeting where they discussed it, there was quite a bit of back and forth happening around these two former members of law enforcement. And so we'll, we'll really have to keep up with that conversation. RPD did not enforce a gun ban law last Thursday when pro-Trump white nationalists gathered downtown despite the fact that the event was advertised online as an armed event, there were no flyers posted by RPD prohibiting firearms as required. And this gun ban law was legislation that was proposed by Mayor LeVar Stoney and passed by city council this summer following protests. We've seen this time and time and time and time again, not just this year, but you know, throughout a history in Richmond where they just allow KKK, white supremacists, white terrorists to ride through the streets and terrorize people. Why? Because they are brothers in arms. Mm-hmm. Earlier I was wearing my Cops and Clan Go Hand in Hand sweatshirt, and this is definitely one of those times. I mean, does anyone else remember MLK Day 2020? Because I haven't forgot. I have not forgot. I have not forgotten the utter fear that folks in this city had thinking about pro-Trumpers coming into the streets. And that was supposed to be a day of reclamation for black and brown people. And they still allow those men and women to come down here and take over the city with firearms and weapons open, running through the streets, proud. And ain't nobody said nothing to them. At the Capitol. Because we are in the Capitol of the Confederacy. So it's no surprise. Mm -hmm. This week on Eviction Watch, the courts will hear 405 unlawful detainer cases, with 136 cases being heard on Thursday alone. This has been a steady number each week. Unlawful detainers are one of the first steps landlords take before evicting tenants. And while there are some moratorium legislation in place that help to prevent many of the physical evictions from taking place, the reality is that these cases are still being litigated in court and folks are being put at risk of eviction during a pandemic which we know is murder. And it's truly terrible. Like 405 of these cases, that's just one week. Last week, it was over 300 cases. So that's two weeks, you know, 700 unlawful detainers up more than that. And so that's really alarming. And they've proven to be irresponsible with the way that they keep up with folks who have been displaced from their homes. We saw this in early February where they were taking folks out of their tents, evicting them from their camps and placing them in motels that were rat infested for two weeks and then leave them out to dry 
or literally be rained on actually. And so we know that in this pandemic, especially when you need water and you need to be self-isolating, you need to be just quarantined. You know, you need to have the ability to keep yourself safe inside indoors. Putting people out on the street is actually attempted murder. Yeah, it really is. And it's especially concerning as we're hearing possibilities of another stay-at-home order to be evicting folks when our city council also voted to not have a cold weather shelter for houseless people in our community. And so we're seeing these increased unlawful detainers. We have seen evictions during this pandemic, and there's absolutely no safety nets for folks that are experiencing housing insecurity during this pandemic. Richmond has proven that this is not the city for the houseless. This is the city for the real estate developers, which is why we continue to have one of the highest houseless populations in the nation. And speaking of leading numbers... Richmond Times-Dispatch reporter Kenya Hunter has reported that over the past five years, Richmond public schools have suspended Black students at an alarmingly high rate, citing that last year, more than half of the 18,000 days missed because of suspensions were at George With, Armstrong, Huguenot, and John Marshall High Schools, and Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School, where the enrollments are predominantly Black and Latinx students. You know, Legal Aid Justice has a really, really good report on this Virginia school to prison pipeline where they cite resource starvation. This leads into suspensions, right? Suspensions and the school to prison pipeline in Virginia go hand in hand. When kids are getting suspended, they're going to be more likely to end up in youth incarceration. And so there's a really good report done by Legal Aid Justice where they talk about Virginia school to prison pipeline and cite resource starvation, which we know is very prevalent in Richmond. Suspensions, as you're talking about, not addressing the actual academic challenges that students are facing, and expulsion. And in Virginia, we actually have the highest rate in the U.S. for students referred to law enforcement. That's awful. And I'm just looking at these numbers, 18,000 days missed because of suspensions last year. And that's before we went into quarantine. When I posted this article online, teachers were commenting and saying that Black students were still being suspended in their homes while we're doing virtual schooling. Yeah, we know that Black students are just over-criminalized in these Richmond public schools and in Virginia public schools generally. It's Black and disabled students who are the ones who are being referred to law enforcement first. So, you know, they just think these kids are disposable they don't want them in their classrooms. They see them, they see their struggles as issues and inhibitions um, and like an unwillingness to conform to their weird carceral like model of education. It's so upsetting to just see students lose opportunities so early in life. Yeah, I mean, we're talking middle school. And I just really hope that the incoming school board takes up this issue of getting rid of SROs and SSOs out of schools because I don't think that our students should be missing many more days due to suspensions. I mean, I'm already struggling as an adult with dealing with school, COVID, and policing, so I can only imagine how that impacts much younger children and people in this country. Yeah. So in statewide news, GOP delegate Kirk Cox has announced his run for governor. Kirk Cox? No. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. GOP? No. <laughs> you didn't get to night, you hear that. And coming out of Fairfax, Circuit Judge David Bernhardt appears to be the first in Virginia to rule that keeping someone in jail in lieu of a cash bond is unconstitutional. He says that it violates the due process clause 
by forcing poor people to remain confined while the wealthy walk free. Ned Oliver from the Virginia Mercury reports. The fact that cash bond exists just as this reincarnation of debt slavery and it's so normalized. It constantly weighs on my soul. I don't know. It's very depressing. The issue of cash bond has been something that has affected many Black families in this city, and it's violent. I hope that we finally can see the end of debtors' prisons that are holding people in what are now like incarceration coffins almost, because keeping someone incarcerated can be a death sentence with the virus. And really moving towards dismantling tiered systems of freedom. Like, people should be free. We yes. don't need to put a price on it, put a class on it, who's more worthy. We should just have people be free whenever it's possible that we can free them. And we can always free them because we have the funds. Yes. So moving into national news, the U.S. election has been called for Joe Biden. But of course, President Trump has not conceded. So Joe Biden has secured at least 290 electoral votes so far. Of course, there's still some counting and contestation going on in in some of the states. And Attorney General William Barr has started new probes to look into so-called voter fraud. So last week, the chief election crimes prosecutor resigned in protest. And as all this is happening, Trump's inner circle began to test positive for COVID-19 yet again, including Ben Carson. (laughs) Not the doctor. Not the doctor. Not the doctor and gentrifier. So this week, Trump fired a top cybersecurity official via Twitter for disputing his false claims of voter fraud publicly. And Republican leaders such as Lindsey Graham have come under fire for asking for certain mail-in ballots from certain counties in South Carolina to not be counted. Certain. It's too much. And so on top of that, (laughs) as if the Trump tea was already not hot enough, many of these lawsuits that Trump and his supporters have filed in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan have been dropped. And he continues to say that voter fraud is the reason he lost the election while his administration is making it really hard for Biden's transition to be smooth. This is totally the fault of the Democrats. They had the chance to impeach this man on serious crimes against humanity and the so-called American people. And they decided to focus on the establishment's tea. And now we have this man who has been setting up for at least four years to perform a coup is doing exactly what he's been saying that he was going to do. And they're acting like they're surprised or like, I don't know, like there's, I don't understand this, the surprise surrounding this. Trump has been saying this for four years and it's kind of just aggravating that Biden is complaining and the Democrats are complaining when they enabled this. They had the chance to get rid of him. Oh, they're blaming us, right? It was the fault of defund the police activists. It was like, who had the actual power, the actual power and decided that it would be chaotic to discuss or have an impeachment during the presidential election because it would divide the American people. Like, get out of here. Speaking of Joe Biden, Sputnik News reported that Joe Biden pledged a deep commitment to Israel in a call with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Former Vice President Joe Biden has pledged to break with U.S. President Donald Trump's America First policy But pundits uh, fear his projected election could see a return to the military interventionist policies of the Obama administration. 
So a lot of people on both sides of the aisle within the government departments are particularly opposed to, to Trump pulling out the remaining U.S. troops from Afghanistan and Iraq. You know that the Democrat war machine and Joe Biden is known to have been an active proponent within the Obama administration, within the CIA's secret war in Syria known as Operation Timber Sycamore. And so this is just a part of a long democratic strategy of imperialism. And I think weirdly enough, this is one of the only things that Trump has done that like, you can be like, uh, I mean, we should all collectively be against war, but somehow the Democrats go super, super hard for this issue. They go more right than Trump. They're calling him treasonous. Treasonous. I mean, yes, he is. But like the reasons that they choose to criticize this man. Very interesting. Biden has also named Cecilia Munoz, who defended family separations under the Obama administration to his transition team. This makes me think of... Who built the cages, Joe? That's all I can think of. It reminds me of the Democratic debates when you'd see a lot of migrant families and youth showing up to these debates with Joe Biden and demanding accountability, and they silence them then, and they're going to silence them now. And speaking of family separations, we are still unable to find and reunite the parents with 666 children who were taken away from their parents during Trump's zero-tolerance family separation policy earlier on in his administration. And people like to act as if uh, child separation is a new policy established under Trump, but it's actually a part of a long American legacy of genocide where they split people apart from their families for centuries through chattel slavery, through uh, genocide against indigenous people, through foster care, you know, you name it mass incarceration. So last week, Wheezy, who is a member of an organization called Black Unity in LA, was killed by a Trump supporter. The escalation. just keeps happening. Yeah. The escalation from the right with no repercussions, but all the smoke and all the fire for people demanding not to be shot in the streets by police. Yeah, the police are literally just guarding white supremacists like in D.C., where they destroyed the Black Lives Matter plaza wall and white supremacists stabbed people in D.C. and the police were literally protecting the white supremacists. So and in Richmond just a couple of weeks ago when they were riding around in the Trump train and shooting and firing shots at folks and riding cars through medians, the yeah. cops, no energy. If y'all have not already, we have a story about that on our Instagram live. And... In coronavirus news, last week, Pfizer released data that showed that their COVID-19 vaccine is over 90% effective. Phase 3 late-stage study on the two-dose vaccine shows a 90% efficacy rate, but reports have already confirmed that over 80% of the doses of the vaccine have been sold off to the world's richest folks from the U.S., the EU, and so on. I mean... Having a vaccine-based solution versus a quarantining-based solution is obviously a pharmaceutical scheme. I listened to a, a, an interview with, I believe it was a germologist a couple months back, who was talking about how it, it really is just the worst way to deal with this kind of with this kind of pandemic because you know not everyone has the access, as we can see, to these to these drugs. So it's not going to be effective if that's the route that they go. Yeah. Instead of providing care for everyone and making sure that 
you know, everyone has the means of staying safe and quarantining. And then eventually when it's safe and not when it's just beneficial for pharmaceutical industries, we can get a vaccine. Yeah, because these studies are happening really quickly. And like you said, the first thing we see is that the richest folks from these countries bought off the doses and they were already kind of boosting the numbers. They said that we had a bunch of doses, but it's a two dose vaccine. So we had to slash that number in half already. And then most of it has gone to the rich white folks. But in Massachusetts this week, pharmaceutical company Moderna says that their vaccine trials are also showing promising results from its preliminary trials. So this news has given the stock market a big push. Folks love the word vaccine, but it comes as the U.S. continues to lead the world in COVID-19 cases and deaths with over 11 million cases nationwide, over 240,000 deaths, including 3,835 right here in Virginia. Yeah, this is just going to be a rush for Big Pharma to see who can make the most money the quickest with no concern at all for our lives. But I'm already seeing people on my Twitter saying, when the vaccine comes out, I'm going to be out doing XYZ. And I really need y'all to stop planning, stop planning your post-vaccine life. You're not getting that vaccine, baby. You must no. down, sis. That's not coming. We also found out, so this is the tea, Naomi. We found out that the U.S. military has been buying the data of folks using Muslim prayer and dating apps, such as Muslim Pro and Muslim Mingle. And the data is collected by a third party called Xmode, who then sells it to buyers in this case, being the U.S. military. They're getting ready for something. And it's very scary to me to even imagine what it could be, the backlash of so much uprising in so many different peoples across the globe demanding sovereignty and like the departure from U.S. colonialism. They're preparing for something. And Black people are going to be the first to be targeted. And I feel like this has been used a lot of the times in Black liberation movements, you know, targeting Muslims and uh, as well as, you know, Middle Eastern people. And it just shows us that it's not just the police that are surveilling folks, but also the U.S. military. Right. Making that connection that the U.S. military and the police are basically the same thing. They're one in the same. Yes. Coming out of South Dakota in Rapid City, the city council voted nine to one in support of a land exchange resolution that gives land back to the Rapid City indigenous communities. We love to see it. And in international news, Evo Morales has returned to Bolivia last week after being in exile for one year following the right-wing coup that was supported by the U.S. And now he's back in Bolivia following the big win for the Mas Party. And Palestine Secretary General of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, Saeed Erekat died of COVID-19 last week. Erekat was a fierce powerhouse working for Palestinian liberation and was known for his presence as a peace negotiator, unwilling to yield the rights of Palestinians. Yeah, he was one of the uncles to one of my mentors and friends and the international human rights lawyer and Palestinian activist, Nura Erekat. In Peru, President Manuel Moreno has resigned amid the largest protests the country has seen in recent history. This is happening while a good amount of their legislature is under investigation for corruption. A senior officer in the Nigerian army has actually admitted 
to a judicial panel that was investigating the shootings that protesters in October were shot following an appeal given by Baba Jade Sawa'alu, governor of Lagos State. Many protesters have had their passports taken, been arrested, surveilled, and some are actually fleeing to other countries in order to escape this state-sanctioned terror. Solidarity to all Black people in the African diaspora who are resisting. And that is it for our reframe today. Thank you, Naomi, for joining us. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a long winter. It is. And this week on Race Capital, we are going to get some more tools in our tool belt so that we can prepare for this long winter of revolution and uprising. We are going to speak to members of the Richmond chapter of Counter Power, a U.S.-based communist organization, about their book, Organizing for Autonomy, History, Theory, and Strategy for Collective Liberation. We'll hear from Ozma, Tay, and Podrick shortly. Stay tuned. So I have y'all's amazing book here. I'm not all the way through it, as you can tell, because my tab stopped somewhere. <laughs> but it's been a really good read so far. I'm enjoying it. It's the first like theory book I've read since grad school. So I'm taking my time going through it. But it is very thorough, very dope. It's what researchers need, I think, in this time, as someone who's sat through a bunch of research classes. <laughs> So welcome to Race Capital, Asma, Padraig, Tay. Thank y'all so much for coming on to the show today. This is a conversation that I've been looking forward to for quite some time, ever since I got this awesome book and heard about your organization. So for our listeners, can you all introduce yourselves and tell us tell us who you are? We are Counterpower Richmond. We're, all three of us are based out of Richmond but we are a cadre organization and we have several chapters outside of Virginia. We have members also abroad. uh, And so most of our members are like very spread out and doing very, very different things. That's so dope. So that's domestic and international. Mostly domestic. We have like one or two members outside of the country. That's awesome. So who are y'all? Hey y'all, I'm Tay. I'm using they, them pronouns. I've been a member of Counterpower for about three years. I moved to Richmond with the intention of getting finishing my college degree and ended up meeting some really rad folks and found my way to counter power and um, just been there ever since. My name's Padraig. I use he, him pronouns and I work in education and am currently involved in trade union organizing. And I've been a member of counter power since its inception going back to, oh, I think we officially launched in 2010. So we've been around for a long time and have really experienced much of our growth more recently. Uh, So it's been a journey to see the growth and development of this project and its uh, transformation. That's incredible. 10 years. And Asma, you have been on our platform a few times, so our listeners should know you by now. But if they don't, can you tell us who you are? I'm Asma. I use they, them pronouns. And I'm a member of Counterpower of about five years, I think, at this point. I got into Counterpower after my original org. Like the first org I've ever joined got um, this dismantled, abolished, whatever word you want to use. It no longer exists for very horrible reasons. And like Counterpower has like a very loving environment. And that's what drew me to Counterpower, that it, it feels like a family to me. 
That's awesome. We love finding a warm political home that embraces us. We always tell our listeners to find a political home, grow there, and invite your affinity groups to do the same. So I hear a little bit about Counterpowered. It's a U.S.-based communist organization. Y'all have a few members that are outside of the U.S., but in your own words, can y'all tell me a little bit about Counterpower? Totally. Counterpower, as you mentioned, is a political organization. We are a communist organization, that big scary C word. Um, (laughs) And... Marx and Engels define communism as the real movement, which abolishes the present order of things. And I think, you know, we take that really seriously. What is the present order of things that needs abolishing? And so our analysis would be that the interlocking of heteropatriarchy, white supremacist, colonialism, settler colonialism, capital, and the state form a cohesive system that has to be abolished and a system that centers the satisfaction of human needs and the holistic development of human capacities should take its place. Like that's the task for humanity now and into the future. And so... We hope to make a humble contribution to developing a 21st century communist politics that sort of takes the best and leaves the rest from past waves of revolutionary struggle and integrates insights from not just Marxism, but also, you know, revolutionary social anarchism, indigenous liberation struggles, black liberation struggle, decolonial struggles globally, queer and trans feminisms, environmental justice, and really think that that's like the, a theoretical and political task that we have is how do we synthesize all these different currents into a coherent and um, usable political framework. So we have like our version of that, but we don't think that ours is the only one, but we we have our version of that. Takes the best and leaves the rest. Come through with that. I also just wanted to say we're like defined as like a cadre organization, which basically just means we're all involved in different forms of mass work, be it like tenants unions or councils, mutual aid, teachers unions. But we all have like a unified political analysis. So we all go into different forms of work, but we're coming together and like talking about like the questions or like contradictions we're dealing with. And yeah, we just like have like this common analysis that we are able to like facilitate our conversations through and like a framework through which we can problem solve um, and talk about like bringing more people around. Sounds like a wonderful place. Yeah, the best way that I describe it to people who are not familiar with the Cadre Org is that we are a family and that we begin our days and we go off to work. And then at the end, we come home to have like our dinners or like our weekly meetings or bi-weekly meetings, whatever it is that week. And we like discuss and we break it down. We not only just talk about the sort of nitty gritty part of organizing, but we also deal with each other's emotions and like any sort of conflicts that may arise and that sort of thing. And it's a, a better way of, the best way of organizing, in my opinion, it doesn't just meet sort of the very baseline of like, you got to do this, we got to reach revolution. It's like also what's best for our like mental health. It's like relational organizing put into real practice, it sounds like. Wow, this is for me an example to kind of look to. So thank y'all for sharing about your org. <laughs> I just wanted to say we are like a family, but like not like the family that like your boss says when you're like interviewing for a shitty like restaurant or retail job and they're like, yeah, we're, we're family. And it's, it's not like that. This is like straight up chosen family. Like we look out for each other. 
Yeah, and all families go through ups and downs. It's just mm-hmm. at the end of the day, where you're responsible to each other in a different way. that y'all have. Organizing for Autonomy, History, Theory, and Strategy for Collective Liberation. It's quite amazing. As I was saying earlier, it's one of the first books I've read about theory since I've graduated from grad school. And that's really saying something because after you write a thesis, sometimes you really just don't want to look at books. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I've been reading this book and As y'all see, I've taken a lot of notes. Can y'all tell us a little bit about how this book came about? Yeah, I think it developed organically from our participation in a few different fronts of struggle that spanned sort of anti-imperialist wing of uh, the student anti-war movement in the early 2000s and Palestine solidarity through to labor organizing right up to our current work in the tenant movement and labor organizing today. And a tension that arises, I think, is that tension between economic analysis, class struggle, identification of workers, and like the working class as a key subject of liberation, and the tension between that and feminist struggles, anti-racist and decolonial struggles, sort of sector-specific struggles like around environmental justice or international solidarity or these, you know, I think it was an attempt to work through some of the questions that came up in our work. We're trying to develop a language that communicates some of these concepts in a slightly more condensed form. So when we talk about the system, the system we face is not just white supremacy. It is not just heteropatriarchy. It is not just the state. And it is not just capital in the abstract. And we call it imperialism. And that's an argument we develop in the book. And that came out of our experiences. But, you know, we would define imperialism as sort of the mutual entanglement of those four categories of social relations. And there are liberation struggles that arise in relationship to each of those modalities, right? That you have very clearly defined lines of struggle that we see from Standing Rock to Black Lives Matter, from the Chicago Teachers Union strike to rent strikes and tenant unionization. So the question is, how can we piece all of these components together into a cohesive system of struggle, into a system of counterpower that can tackle the system as a whole? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Do y'all have anything to share? Well, the book was written semi-collectively. We had one main writer, but the book is a summarization of all of our politics. And so when Pat said that, like, it was a long time coming, it was sort of that counterpower continued to ask questions within the group. And it started formulating ideas and summarizing other people's ideas and being like, well, this is what we think. And we sort of want to share that experience. And so once we sort of got enough groundwork to do it, we kind of already had a book laid out for us. We just had to physically write the book. And so the process of writing the book was one person summarizing all of those notes for the past, what, like 10 years, and then going through mass editing processes with the entire group. 
So even though technically one person sat down by a computer and wrote it out, we all had a hand in writing it past and present counterpower members. And I would even say future counterpower members as well. That's incredible. Yeah, and like comrades would write different parts of it or they would say, why don't we talk about this question? Or why don't we use this historical example instead? And we would say, cool, write write that down. And then we sort of weave it into our tapestry. I think too, the book was, at least for me, helping like edit it and like going back and reading through it, it helped me kind of realize where our blind spots or like biases may be, or like where we haven't focused enough attention, which helps us realize this is where we want to put more energy or like this is where we need to like rethink our energy. Yeah, it sounds like this is the work of many people, right, that got weaved into this process. And honestly, I don't know that I've heard of a book writing or editing process that has been so inclusive or engaging. So that's dope. Even those who weren't active in the writing or editing process, like always, it was stressful for all of us. We sort of just felt it sort of spread out through the the entire group as the writing process happened. Mm. Diffusion of stress. Yeah. It's interesting because we had past experiences to draw from with collective writing. For example, during Occupy Wall Street, as well as Black Lives Matter Round One, you know, we were producing writing and interventions that we were distributing, you know, in the streets and among people we met just through our organizing work and often would write collectively. And that sort of scaffolded, I think, our collective thinking and processing and writing skills. We also learned it's really hard when you try to write something like from scratch collectively. And so we collected those questions and organized them. And it, it was it was a really prolonged process to put it all together. Wow. And it seems like the time that y'all took really did pay off because what came out of that was this incredible book that, frankly, quite a few of my comrades, you know, we're, we're starting to tussle around what y'all y'all gave us. So thank you for that labor. One thing this book did shift my perspective on is the role of social research and theory in the movement for total liberation. So like I told y'all, I've taken a lot of research methods classes. I've conducted my own research writing a thesis around the Black Lives Matter movement. And the ideas that you all present in this book about the role of radical social research in the revolution, it spoke to my soul. So can you all expand on these ideas just a little bit further for us? So in the book, the examples that we provide as historical precedents are things like Frederick Engels wrote a book called The Condition of the Working Class in England. It was like this uh, investigation into like the life of factory workers in Manchester, England. And then and the Chinese Revolution, like Mao Zedong conducted a investigation into the life and struggles of peasants. In Italy, in the 60s and 70s, there were these worker inquiries that were conducted in the factories of Turin, where mostly migrant factory workers were concentrated and researchers were, and and when I say researcher, I don't mean academic researcher, right? These were militant worker organizers who didn't necessarily work in the factories, but were trying to collect data and make connections and build networks with workers in these factories with the intention of building, of producing a collective knowledge of the power that people had, different positions in society, right? That in this case, what power did working people have 
at the point of production. There's other examples of this throughout the history of struggles for liberation, conducting these inquiries with the aim of developing a more comprehensive knowledge of the system we face, the enemy that we have to struggle against, the power that we have, and that society is always in motion and relations of domination and resistance are always being reshuffled and reconfigured. They're not fixed throughout space and time. They ebb and flow with the struggle. They change with the struggle. And so these inquiries were an attempt to have a hot investigation, as they called it, not like a cold investigation that's done just through reading books or, you know, compiling statistics, but getting that like real life hard data from working people and oppressed people's everyday lives and developing mechanisms through which people are recording their own stories and piecing together their own strategies based on that knowledge, right? Getting, so it's like a strategic type of research. The aim of the research is like, how do we break this system and what knowledge is in our midst that can be reappropriated and then deployed in the service of the struggle? I think that a myth that needs to be dispelled is that you need a college degree to be a researcher or to have heart inquiries into the conditions that you live in. And, you know, I've gone through the IRB process of getting your research approved, getting it denied, right? And it's it seems so far away from this conversation of just gathering information within your own community and kind of taking command of like social research for the purpose of militancy and furthering our movements for liberation and i think that y'all put that together so well in this book to kind of make it more inviting for folks that may not want right like a doctorate and a whole career in academia but want to contribute to their community through their thirst for data yeah, I think one of my favorite parts of the entire book is in the very beginning, talking about the Bus Writers Union in LA, which I had never heard of until like we were starting to bring this this book together and then like reading about it, how these like mostly low income Black, Latinx and Asian bus writers were really frustrated with bus overcrowding conditions and realizing that like that problem wasn't just going to solve itself. They like militantly were like, all right, we're going to figure this out. We're going to like survey people and ask if they would strike or like not pay a fare. And they did this whole campaign. They did the research like it took months and months. And then like by the end of all this work they did, the MTA and LA decided to, they agreed, they purchased like 2,500 new buses and that's people power. That wasn't college, college education didn't do that. <laughs> and I think that's so important as an organizer realizes our liberation is not going to come from academia. It never was. Right. Some of our oppression is actually tied up in it. Hell yeah. Yeah. I think the role of things like surveys and collecting data are essential to us as organizers because when we're building demands and trying to build people power, if it's not informed by what the people actually want, then it's very hard to build power to meet those demands. Exactly. Also, like, surveys don't necessarily need to be the traditional like open-ended question and like you multiple choice or whatever. Surveys can also just come in the form of talking to your coworkers at the end of the day, checking on people's well-being. There's like multiple routes other than like the standardized survey. And I think I personally don't like to use the word survey because it does give that weird context, but it's just creating those connections between other people so that you have this open dialogue of your needs and your wants. And that's why in the book, we call it 
social investigation, right? Or, or inquiry, I mean, militant inquiry, militant social investigation, there's co-research, right? there's a lot of different names that could be used, but it's not a traditional academic research process, as Asma was just saying. And, you know, any organizer that's worth their salt, they do this. Like they are researchers. You investigate the contradictions and the tensions that are present in a workplace or a community. You identify who the enemy is, who your allies are, and who's on the fence and what you would need to do to win them over to the cause of liberation. And you collect that data. It's not traditional data. It's not necessarily all numbers. It's largely not quantitative, though there is a quantitative component for sure but a lot of it is qualitative and descriptive about the conditions of life and the politics embedded within that particular social situation or environment. And so any organizer does this. And that's like the site where partisan social science research is conducted and it's fused to the construction of organization, right? Like the experiments that we conduct, so to speak, like our laboratory is history it's society. And so the experiments we conduct are ones of building organization and waging struggle until humanity is free. One thing that traditional academic researchers will say is there's a need to be objective and there's a need to be removed from the folks that are being quote unquote studied. And this is something that as much as so-called progressive researchers want to break, I think that it's still very much the norm that we see folks coming into communities that they're not a part of, answering a research question, and then ejecting themselves out to create whatever publications that they're going to do and get cited for it. And so this idea that y'all are bringing about of there needing to be almost a decentralization of research, I think it's something that everyone needs to, to think about because it empowers the everyday person to take charge in their own community of interrogating the conditions. Something that has been very much taken away from us with this academic process of getting approved and then being able to do your study. That to me feels like another level of oppression. I agree. And I think part of this book was imagining like what will society look like if workers are running it? And to imagine that, we also have to enact that, right? Like as we're imagining, part of our imagining has to be done along those same lines of us doing the research, not waiting for stuffy academic to get their funding and like, tell us, you know, tell us what they think about us in their mansion. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the comrades who wrote this book, of which all of us were a part of, but there were many more who were not part of this conversation. But like, you know, I remember when we were working on it in its initial stages, you know, I was working in restaurants and I'd be talking with my coworkers about these questions. And there's all these assumptions that philosophy and science that, you know, sort of heady ideas around political theory and strategy, that that's like not for the people at the base of society or something. And Anyone who talks with their coworkers or their neighbors knows that is just such crap. And people are producing knowledge all the time and knowledge of their, you know, from standpoint that they occupy in society, in relationship to their oppressors, whether that's boss, the cops, the state, whoever it might be. And there's so much knowledge that gets transmitted through what James Scott called like infra politics. You think about the role of like gossip 
or shit talking your boss or all types of conversational knowledge production that is concentrated in workplaces and in communities. And, and people are producing knowledge all the time. The task of the like organizer or the militant researcher is to try to synthesize some of that knowledge and to bring it into dialogue with other struggles and to make those connections so that people aren't just taking their position as exceptional, but seeing that, oh, wow, like this is because I'm a member of a certain class or an oppressed social group. And there's a system that requires certain hierarchies and I'm in that hierarchy. And actually I have a common interest with people who have a, maybe a different experience or occupy a different position, but also aren't at the top, are also oppressed and exploited. And so one of the tasks of research in its organizing function is to bring these different standpoints into dialogue with one another in order to arrive at a more comprehensive revolutionary synthesis. And academics can't do that. It's not the work of academia. Academia sequesters knowledge away from the people. Yeah, something I've been reflecting on for a few years is the idea of seeing our own selves and others that look like us as intellectuals. So that meaning like our aunts, right? Our grandmothers and folks that came before us that may not have held a college degree, right? I'm a first-generation college student, so this is something I've reflected on quite a bit. But seeing their their knowledge and their knowledge production as just as valid and as necessary to our process. And I think it's something that academics don't give credence to enough because they go into these communities, extract whatever knowledge they feel is appropriate, and then leave to never even oftentimes present their work back to those communities. And so another thing I think about is what we do with the research when we're done. Does it just sit in somebody's online library or is it reproduced and shared out? And so do y'all have any thoughts about how once the knowledge is produced or synthesized, how you get it out to folks? Well, I would say that the book in its current form is not meant for everyone. Like we sort of already know that it's very dense. It's normally for people who are already looking for a book. It's for people who like sort of jargony based things who can like sit for long periods of time and take notes. And we know that's not how everyone learns. Not everyone in the world is going to find this book, but I would say that this knowledge did not start in this book and therefore no one needs to read this necessarily. I would like to, cause we did put labor behind the book, but all of our sort of practices with the Richmond Tenants Union, with like the Little Rad Library, all of our other projects across our other membership chapters, that's where this knowledge is and where it will continue to be shared after this book is long forgotten. Uh, this sounds like for folks that are out there in their own affinity groups that are doing this work, that this could almost be a blueprint, right? That we can all be sharing our, our work and the knowledge that we're learning, whether it's in a book, a zine, podcast, or just online, in person. There's many ways for us to package up the knowledge that we're producing to get it out to folks. And I just appreciate y'all showing us yet another example of how that looks. Yeah, we like to think of it as it's a political framework, right? Uh, an analytical, visionary, and strategic framework um, that attempts to provide a lens or multiple lenses through which to view our organizing work. It's not the only one, right? If it, in fact, there's a few examples 
that I could think of that are quite recent and contemporary. For example, the Red Nation, which is an indigenous liberation organization, they recently published this pamphlet called Communism is the Horizon, Queer Indigenous Feminism is the Way. And I think in a lot of respects, what they put forward, we would view our work as complementary to it. I think there's similar questions that are being raised and similar frameworks that are being developed. Certainly, we hope that our work is in dialogue in some fashion with that type of work. And of course, you know, going back even further to the Kambahi River Collective, those are precursors to sort of the framework that, so it's like the framework's implicit in a lot of political work already and there's different names that it could go under i think we're trying to push it in a certain direction and almost like to reunite revolutionary intersectional decolonial feminism with revolutionary marxism but like there's a lot of different ways that that could be done yes y'all putting y'all's flavor on it and i will shamelessly say that the red nation is one of my favorite podcasts so thank you for mentioning them i want to ask y'all how can we support the work that you do And are there best ways for folks to follow and connect with you? Last night, we had talked about how organizations are like tools, not ends. So one way to support us is to just literally get involved in like your local organizing because this is done for more than just us, right? Like we're trying to liberate like everybody and any way that you can join and help other organizers or like create your own infinity groups, let's go. And then the other way was sort of you could... If you're in Richmond and need a hub, then we are a hub in Richmond that you can join or get involved. Part of the cadre experience is that you have to be involved with mass work beforehand. So it's like get involved with the Richmond Tenants Union, get involved with the Richmond Eviction Defense, which is not necessarily a organization that's attached to counterpower, but that still counts as mass work. And sort of that sort of process into like counterpower, that's like another way to support us. And same with Richmond Mutual Aid, too. Giving your time and your energy and your monetary and material donations, if you have the means, give it up. Richmond Mutual Aid is doing the work. And if our perspective speaks to you, if you are into a holistic and integral approach to partisan social science, and you believe that working people should have control over the decisions that affect our lives and the resources on which we depend, and you think that the Democratic Party and the nonprofit industrial complex is not going to bring liberation for anybody, but it's only going to come from the oppressed and exploited masses themselves, then hit us up. You can hit us up at counterpower at riseup.net. We are on Twitter at A Free Society and Facebook at A Free Society. Nationally, our Twitter is Avery Society, and locally, our uh, Richmond Twitter is Counterpower RVA. But don't hesitate to reach out. We run educational programs. If you're interested in joining, contact us. But the commitment is to the work, and we got to build political organization and grassroots mass organizations that are independent of the present system and that are willing to be courageous and bold in advancing a vision of what the world could be like beyond heteropatriarchal, white supremacist, capitalist imperialism. That is the task. Yes. And y'all know you're on Race Capital, so we will not be able to let you leave our show without asking you the question, what's your privilege? So what is your privilege and how do you use it to dismantle white supremacy? My privilege, I'm a white, uh, mostly able-bodied person. I 
really just am trying to convince all of my loved ones that this is a settler, settler colonial nation and it can't be saved. And like, we don't need to try anymore. (laughs) So, I mean, just like telling people it's time for us to like put our energy into like organizing ourselves and because we can defend ourselves, we can thrive, but we have to do it together. I mean, as a white cis man worker on stolen land in the belly of the beast and the heart of empire, um, you know, I like to think about this question in terms of what is our responsibility What is our ethical responsibility to humanity and to the land that we occupy? And, you know, the task is to support revolutionary struggles for liberation and to put yourself on the front lines of those struggles and to put in effort and make sacrifice. And that means self-critical, reflective work. It means a lot more than that, too. It means putting in time and energy and labor to building organizations that can actually fight the imperialist ruling class and build a new world. And, you know, for people like me, I mean, be like John Brown, be like David Gilbert. You know, there's a lot of race traders out there and anti-imperialist revolutionaries that understood clearly the role of the United States empire in the world, the role of whiteness as a divisive factor of keeping working and oppressed people apart. So if you don't take those first steps in that direction of putting your lot in with the vast majority of humanity, then I don't know what you're doing. And privilege isn't something that you can just give up either. I mean, you can't give up privilege. It's embedded in the system in terms of white preferential access to housing markets and education and you know all, all the different ways that y'all talk about on this show in terms of the way racial capitalism is a oppressive, destructive force. So that's what we got to undo. That's going to take a long time. And listen to people. Listen. (laughs) That's like, I think another key thing is like, just like listen and learn and be willing to like, listen to Black and Indigenous and Latin American Asian liberation struggles, uh, past and present. I currently have a stable job that allows me to have like extra income that's sort of not used. And that's sort of a privilege to even have the sort of like, idea that you could have a savings. And so one of the ways that I I do, and then many others also do, but I also urge that others do it as well. And it's to donate to places like MADAR, donate to like Race Capitals, Patreon, like you're tuning in every single Wednesday. Yes. Uh, Like if you're white and middle class, donate your money to these people who are educating you weekly. Donate to people's uh, commissaries and prison and jail like all those weird spots that you never really think of, those are all places that you have power. Like you're you're currently the one who has power and that if you have the money, go ahead and give it full stop. Amen. Thank you all so much for coming on. We are going to include in the description of this episode about how to purchase y'all's book and of course, how to follow Counterpower online at A Free Society. If you're in Richmond, you can get a copy of this book from Small Friend Records and Books, which has both our book, Organizing for Autonomy, and lots of other really radical history, theory, literature, all, all of it. They're also the bookstore that mainly supplies most of the books for the Little Rad Library. 
Oop, they the plug. Okay. <laughs> and that is our Race Capital episode for today. Thank you so much for listening in with me, Kalia Harris, as we talk to members of Counterpower. And we'll see y'all again next week here in the fallen capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, on Race Capital.